you are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. Sit back, relax, and join Lee Child in conversation with Joseph Finder as part of the Feigston of Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Uh, anyway, Lee, it's great to see you. Good to see you too, and um, so much to talk about. We have to, I think, start with um, the COVID thing as as it impacts on writers. I mean, I'm not an epidemic expert. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a statistician or any of that useful stuff. Um, but I found it fascinating this um, this past three months. It's, I've been here in, uh, in my house in Wyoming continuously for three months and 11 days. Starting like in, in uh, February? I started mid-March, March 18th, yeah. I came out here. And so that's about, I haven't worked it out, over 100 nights in the same bed, under the same roof. And thinking about it, I have not done that for at least 25 years. Yeah. Maybe longer. Um, yeah. It could be 40 years since I've spent 100 days in the same place. And uh, what I'm asking all writers is how, how, how have you felt as a writer? What have you noticed? What have you done? Uh, has it helped? Has it hurt? Um, those type of questions. Interesting. Yeah. Um, because my friends all say this probably, you probably can't even tell the difference that, you know, the assumption is that a writer is just solitary and is used to being at home, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I, find, I find it actually has made a difference in a couple of ways. Uh, for me, I found that um, um, I miss, I really do miss the kind of low hum of being around people once in a while. I mean, I like to be by myself, but I also like to occasionally have lunch with friends or go out for drinks or something like that. And doesn't that, don't you feel that, don't you miss that? I know you're pretty solitary. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, uh, I like your use of words there. Yeah, I would like to see people when I want to, which yeah. is, um, and this has brought into focus, how many times do I actually want to? And actually, I'm doing fine most of the time. But yeah, just those trivial, spontaneous, unplanned Mm -hmm. uh, things that, I mean, you and I have done that, you know, you're in town, we'll go go for lunch and dinner. Right. And uh, really doesn't amount to a hill of beans, but it, it feels good. And it is a stimulating couple of hours. And then you get back to solitary confinement and you, right. you, you, you work. And I do miss that. And I miss the trivialities of... Yep, exactly. Because the catch-22 for me of, of this lockdown has been an uh, infinite amount of time to do things that I need to do, you know, fix this, paint that. Right. But I don't have a paintbrush. I don't have the screws or whatever. And I, normally you'd go to the store and get them and it would be a 20-minute diversion and you would right. feel, yeah, okay, I'm getting on with things. But you're prevented at every stage. So I found it... Yes. It, it's, it boils it down to the essence. What do you actually need to do and what is it that you miss? And yeah, I miss the, the company of people. I don't particularly miss the big formal events. I mean, I, oh, I'm sure, sure like you, I've had like 40 things canceled yep. this year and it looks like the rest of the year is canceled. Right. But um, in a way, I, uh, you know, taking a year off from that, fine. But, uh, yeah, the, the casual contact. Yeah, but you... The, the eavesdropping, you know, you go out on the street. Yes. And you, especially yes. with phones, I love that, where you hear half a phone conversation. Yeah. And then in writing, you've got to imagine what, it, what the other half is and so on. Right. Just stupidest things is what I'm missing. Absolutely. That weird kind of buzz. Um, but... Um, I don't, you know, I actually, I have a, um, I have a source for my new book. He's a cop and I don't really know anything about how cops really work. So I figure I want to try to get some of the basics right. And so I have this cop and then um, I would take him out to 
to for a steak or take him out to dinner. You know, we'd have some wine or beer or something like that. And, you know, a, par- a big part for me of meeting with a source is that social interaction. Now, if I have a question or a couple of questions, I have to call him on the phone. Mm-hmm. That's very different. You know, you miss so much. Yeah, you do. And uh, especially the eating thing. Yeah, you know, yeah. you can get a million clues out of out of dinner. How did? What is the order? How does the order? Exactly. What is he? <laughs> uh, how does he? Because right. uh, I'm very aware of that in me. That um, when I go out to dinner with a, a largish group, uh-huh. I hate hate that thing where you share. Um, starters. Right. I came from a big family and it was first day best fair. And <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very protective of my food. I mean, often I find myself making that physical gesture. You know, I sit with my arms around the plate. Right. Which is the kind of subconscious uh, protection wanting to keep it. Yes. And you, you pick up stuff like that just through simple physical observation that you can't uh, in any other way. Right. Right. Um, and uh, I really miss that. And I sort of... Yeah. And I miss the, um, the third party intrigue you get as well. I, I, went, um, I went to dinner with an FBI guy who was probably the most irresponsible FBI agent ever because <laughs> coming back from the dinner... He drove me back to my hotel, this was in California, and he put his lights and siren on just for the fun of it to bring us at the hotel. But during the dinner, it was um, a warmish evening and he took off his coat and hung it on the back of his chair, thereby revealing his shoulder holster with his enormous automatic, which was a bit of a shocker for a California restaurant. I think the other guests were pretty um, pretty, uh, unhappy about it. Yeah, so you missed that kind of thing. I yeah, you really know. So we'll talk about the new book, obviously, the cop book, but we haven't really talked about this year's book. No, that's right. Yeah, so we'll, that's obviously to be talked about. But first, um, the other thing that I really wanted to know from you in, in this particular context that we're doing now for HIF yeah. is um, how, how do you see Harrogate as a... I mean, you're a world traveler, you're a, uh, you know, certainly a very metropolitan guy, but you don't have any particular contact with Great Britain, mm-hmm. family-wise or anything. So when you go to Harrogate, what do you see? You know, what do you think of it? It's, well, I really, I've stayed several times at the hotel um, that it was at, and they're, they're very idiosyncratic, the hotels in, in Harrogate. These kind of old, um, sort of, you know, early 20th century, 19th century hotels that are kind of creaky and, and put together in funky ways and that sort of thing, right? So mm-hmm. the hotel itself is kind of strange. The festival is so unusual. I mean, I, I'm used to BoucherCon or Thriller Fest where... There are multiple tracks, and you, if you want to go to this thing, you can go to this thing or go to that thing or not go to anything at all and go to the bar. Um, at Harrogate, there's one track, and everyone does it. So there's this really – it's a smaller, much smaller festival, uh, and the bar is always going. <laughs> you know, because, you know, you, you English guys love your beer, right? And uh, yeah. it's always going. It is. I love it. I love, I love Harrogate. The, uh, yeah, the hotels are, you know, have been adapted and upgraded numerous times since the 1930s or whatever. Right. And uh, are, are doing their best. But the one track thing is what I like best, not necessarily from our point of view, but from the attendees' point of view. Yeah. Because if you go to Bashikon or Thrill Fest or one of these big ones with, can be four or five or even six, um, tracks at any one time, right. the attendees are in a kind of uh, nervous state. You know, they have to make a decision. They, should you see this guy or, the, or this guy, or should you go shopping, or should you go to the local tourist attraction? 
right. or whatever. And so there's a sort of anxiety about it. Whereas <laughs> at Arrogate, there is not. It's the most supremely relaxed festival from the attendees' point of view because they've got no choice. You go to th this thing, then you go to the next thing, then you go to the bar. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no thinking involved. Yeah. And it's just, it's a great, one of the things I love about, about being at Harrogate is just hanging out with other writers and meeting writers. You meet, you meet various European writers, you meet the Swedish, and you meet you know, this whole range of foreign fiction that we don't run into in the States. I agree. I love that about Harrogate, that it is... Uh, I mean, all the conferences are somewhat international, but you get a different mixture of people at Harrogate that you don't see anywhere else. A lot yeah. of Scandinavians um, and so on. And uh, yeah, I love that too. I, I use festivals as a kind of amphetamine thing that you go there and you meet these people that are, especially the newer writers, yeah. that are so full of talent and ideas and passion. Yep. And, uh, you know, so I go in there as this jaded old guy and then I'm exposed to all of this and I go home again and I really want to work harder because <laughs> you have the sensation of being pursued. Right, right. There's a whole new generation. There is, and they're, they're ready to knock you off. That's right, exactly. So that just makes you work harder, huh? Yeah, it does, and I... I, also, I just get inspired by the simple act of somebody loving their job so much. Yes. Uh, it is, it's a, there's a purity to it that you almost never see anywhere else. Uh, you know, if you hang out with doctors or lawyers or practically any other profession, there's so much kind of ennui about the, the industry as a whole. And yes. there's this sort of crushing dullness about it yes. um, imposed upon them. Uh, whereas writers, because we are obviously publishers are involved, obviously there's policy and money and all that kind of thing involved, but basically it's about the author. Um, are they working well or not that year? Yeah. And um, so I think there's a purity to it. You see the ideas, you see the passion. And um, I, I, I never talk about what I'm doing at those things because you just feel so inadequate. You know? <laughs> And you're talking, you're talking as Lee Child. That's great. Yeah, but I think people need to, you know, they need to understand that. Uh, you and I were nobody once, and, uh, you know, you, you do the work, you show up, and, and you get somewhere. And it's fascinating to watch other people in that same process. Was Harrogate around when you started out? It was not. It was not when I first started out, but I think it started up fairly soon. But it was an invitation-only thing, and for a number of years, I didn't get invited. Right. And, um, you know, that's a metric of progress, I suppose. Do you get invited? Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, um, I mean, my, my career has been fascinating from that point of view about, and I hope it sort of stands in, I know Val McDermott's in the same position and so on, where Ian Rankin is too. You get sucked into the establishment. You suddenly get approved of yeah. Uh, and uh, it's a very odd thing. I remember it happening to Ian Rankin, and it's, it's a peculiar dynamic in Britain where there's got to be a, a person who is the representative of that particular whatever. Uh, like soccer, for instance, there was maybe you remember there was a fabulous player called George Best mm -hmm. who was uh, unbelievably talented, extremely charismatic like a rock star, they called him the fifth Beatle. He was around at that time. And eventually he flamed out and retired and it was like this panic amongst the media. They needed another figurehead. So they picked this other soccer player called Kevin Keegan. Mm -hmm. Just more or less quite arbitrarily, they just thought we need a guy. And it was a bit like that with, with uh, Ian Rankin and as much as Colin Dexter was, you know, the more series, he was very much the darling of uh, that sort of middle-class axis that ran between the Sunday Times and the BBC Radio Times. Yeah, yeah. Sort of defines a layer of taste in Britain. And Colin Dexter uh, faded away, and they needed a guy, and it was Ian Rankin. And um, he absolutely worthy of stepping up into the position, but suddenly anointed, you know? Yeah. Isn't that cool? 
actually. It is cool the way it works. And, you know, in the last several years, uh, it's happened to me whereby I suddenly get into magazines that normally would sniff at me and uh, yeah. the Queen gave me an award and all that kind of thing. Right. You were in the, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a bunch of places you've appeared in the TLS. Yeah, right? TLS, Spectator, things like that. Uh-huh. Which, um, you know, very nice. Yeah. It's and by the way, I wanted to mention that um, I think it was at Harrogate that you introduced your brother, Andrew. Yes. Right? Yeah. Right? Like back in 2009 back, or something when he was... About 2009, yeah. Yeah. Starting, right? Yeah. He's, um, so, yeah, he's been around a bit longer than you think now. I mean, that's 10 years. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's, um, he's doing well, I hope. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, let's talk about this. This is, um, it freaked me out when I heard that you were retiring. I just thought, because you have threatened to retire previously a number of times, and I just, it's just, you know, you talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never believed it. Well, do you believe it now? Uh, yeah, I believe it now. And yeah. Andrew's terrific. It was... Um... But it's still freaky news. It, it, well, it's unusual. I mean, not many, not many people do that. And, and part of it was that I thought, kind of always I've done what other writers don't do. Um, you know, I know that you're, I mean, you've got the Hella series, which, which I admire very much. But I've done nothing else apart from one guy for 24 books. Yeah which at some point becomes a bit existentially weird. And, but mainly it was just because I'm so totally bound to my background. You know, I just have this baked in culture that first of all, you go to school, then you work a long time, then you retire. Right. It, it, it was a, the third stage of life inevitable, you know, you do it. And um, you're, you're and, going to retire. Yeah, that you retire at 65 years old. That's what you do. And um, so it, that was a kind of mental framework that I found it very difficult to escape. And uh, at the end of the day, I just thought, why not? You know, um, have, a few, have a few years off and then see what happens. Would you, are you thinking about writing other kinds of books? Other no, books? I... I I mean, as you know, writing is, is partially a lot of fun, just kicking back, lying on the sofa, daydreaming, making up the story. Yeah. Uh, that part I will always do, and I always did do, you know, which is why I was able to be a writer. It was kind of an epiphany. I thought, I do this anyway. All I got to do is write it down. Right. And so, but the writing it down part, you know, there's endless months of typing, and then the endless months of behind the scenes meetings about promotion and so on, and then the promotion. Right. Right. So there's two halves to writing for me. There's the, the daydreaming part and mm -hmm. then the business part. Yeah. And I will always do the daydreaming part. Right. The business part, I'm quite happy not to be sitting there for months typing. Uh-huh. So, wow. So you're, you're basically going to be relieved to sort of do, do nothing. Well, you're not going to do nothing. I know you. Yeah, I'm not going to do nothing. I doubt if I, I doubt if I'll do anything public or you know publicly creative. But I, you know, I love reading, and yeah. the, the only negative to writing to me is how much time it takes away from reading. Yes, and so that's what I'm going to be doing: reading, listening to music, smoking, all my favorite pleasures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a, it sounds like a great life, actually. I hope it, I hope it will be. I mean, it's gotten off to a very weird start this year, um, yeah. obviously. But uh, if we get back to some kind of normality, then uh, I'll let you know how it goes. So this is what you meant when you said you're aging out of being able to write the Reacher books? Yeah, I mean, and seriously, I think, uh, you know, I'd be interested in in your view on this, seriously, I feel like 
I don't totally understand the world anymore. Even, even five years ago, uh, you could have parachuted me anywhere into anything. And within five minutes, I'd have figured it out. And within another five minutes, I'd be the boss of it. <laughs> and I can't do that anymore. There's just too many things going on that are of apparent importance to everybody else or you know, population as a whole, mm -hmm. um, or methods of thinking or methods of expression that I just don't, I just genuinely don't understand anymore. And I don't think you can be a creative figure if you are alienated from the culture to that extent. Right. I think that's right. Um, you, of course, being a younger man, will discover this um, in, in future years, but uh, see how you feel about it. Um, I want to ask you something I read recently. You like to talk about the myth of character development. Character must go on a journey, right? Uh -huh. That's all just crap, correct? In my view, yeah. I mean, that's just MFA crap, in my opinion. Yeah. So were you not tempted to sort of make changes in Reacher as you went along? I, I was... I don't think he could tell time without a watch in the first couple of books. He had a watch in the first couple of books or something, and it was, uh, you know, the watch he'd taken from the army, and he eventually lost it or it was broken or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm terrible with that. I mean, I, I admit it up front. I just make stuff up uh, <laughs> as and when required, and I just say, you can do this, and it, it hasn't in previous books, but whatever. Um, because I very much see it as that book that year. Yes. And I don't particularly love series that depend on prior knowledge. Uh, you know, if I, if I pick up some random book and it's the seventh in a series and I realize that somehow I'm supposed to know stuff and there's, right. there's rather incestuous in-jokes about previous occurrences, I feel a bit excluded by that. Yeah. It's a as a reader. Yeah, I mean, it feels like you've got to work your way into, the, into that culture and maybe you're not going to make it. And so what I always try to do with Reacher and what I think you do with Heller is you, there he is, he's just there, and you do a certain amount of minimal explanation as you go along, hopefully fun. not in, in just regular exposition, but hopefully in uh, meaningful context, you know, like a proper conversation or action or something. Right. Uh, you minimally reintroduce them each time, and then so the reader feels they are in the same position as anybody who's might have read the previous twenty-four. Right. So uh, that's how I try and do it. But I I tried very hard not to change Reacher um, because of our, th our theory that the reader wants a, a known quantity and a, a reliable a reliable um, story. So I, I tried very hard not to change him, but of course the author changes. Right. Uh, you know, by definition, I'm 24 years older than when I started. And so that's a third of my life, uh, more than actually. So uh, obviously I will have changed, so the book will have changed. But do you think you got better as a writer as you went along? Or uh, you? Yeah, I, I definitely did. I, I think, I mean, let me give you an example. Your, your later books are funnier. It's more funny, more sense of humor than the earlier ones, as I recall. Does that make sense? Totally, yeah. I, I think I've got more and more economical and minimalist about the actual prose style, yeah. which meant that it left room for or it sort of multiply the impact of, you know, if Richard says a three or four word sentence that's sardonic or sarcastic or something, it's, it, it stands out more and carries more weight on that page. Right. Um, and yeah, I secretly think Reacher is a funny guy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes I've done events where, you know what it's like doing an event. You basically, it's like being a stand-up comedian for an hour, really. You're trying to give everybody a good time. Yeah. And people afterwards will say, you're so funny. You should make Reacher funny. 
And I think, well, I think he is already. I mean, he is funny. I think he's, yeah, I think Beach has got a great sense of humor. So, other values. Um, so, since people seem to care way more than I think they should about movies and TV shows and that sort of thing, is there any sort of news on that you can talk about with the Amazon Reacher series? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, in a way we were lucky about the timing of it because during this uh, severe lockdown period, it, it was in the writing stage. Perfect. Uh, we wanted to get it. We sort of made up the schedule as we went along in, in response to events, but we wanted to get the entire first season written mm -hmm. by May and then start the casting. And we got it written, uh, and we're, we're trying to cast the lead character, which, as you can imagine, is with the weight of expectation amongst the, the readers and the viewers, is uh, not easy. And so we are, we're just trying to perfect that right now. But it is um, solid, it's proceeding. I, I've read the pilot, it, it's a tremendous screenplay. Is it? And yeah. with a bit of luck, it should, you can never tell how it's going to look on the screen. There's so many subtleties and so on, but with a bit of luck, it should be, it should be really good. Did uh, you, so you basically took the killing floor and made that the first season? Yeah, the, the first season is killing floor. And then, um, but they, you know, they're real, they're being very smart about it because, uh, you know, in your wildest dreams, you're going to get eight seasons maybe. And so there are 24 books. So that's basically one book to provide the spine of the season and two books to be cannibalized for extra scenes or the best parts. Like in the Michael Connelly series, I mean, they sort of take pieces actually. From yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how we're going to do it. And the short stories too, because... Um, you know, as you know, we get asked for short stories all the time and so you do, you fill in little gaps or have some fun with something. I mean, a lot of the short stories I've done is when Risha was a kid, yeah. uh, living with his family still. And so they're going to mine those as well for sort of flashbacks. Yeah. Because, you know, in Killing Floor, it's all about his brother is killed. Well, who was his brother? So they're going to take part of a short story about when they were kids on Okinawa and so on and so forth. Yep. So that, uh, yeah, they got a lot of material to, to, to use. Yeah, you've got 24 books and lots of short stories. And um, one thing I wonder, Reacher is actually, as a character, so interior, you know? It's the, there's this unspoken, this flow of thoughts and inferences and conclusions. That he, that, that's what makes him so entertaining, you know? But so how, have they figured out how to do that in a screenplay, in a teleplay? That is, uh, yeah, that's such a great question because, you know, that, all this, this uh, stuff has been optioned many times and, and, you know, as you know, two movies and, and now Amazon and every single time they buy it with tremendous enthusiasm because you know, you've got a great lead character, you've got an exciting story, you've got the book uh, platform to build from. So they buy it with tremendous excitement. And then they think, oh shit, what, what have we got here? And they've got a guy who lives in his head seven eighths of the time, That's which right. is um, virtually impossible to put on screen. That's and so yeah, they always have that tactical difficulty. How do you get the inside of his head on the screen? Yeah. And um, you don't want to do voiceover. You, you, you really don't. I mean, unless you totally go for that right. as a motif, which I can't see lasting multiple seasons. You know, it might be interesting once. But uh, yeah, so how do you do it? Do you bring in a foil or a sidekick so that they can have the, ex the exposition conversations? You know, which you and I know is so embarrassing that it's such a transparent tactic. You, you really can't do that either. No. So what do you do? It's one of the things when, in, as we write books, I mean, we don't have to do that. We, we don't. Do that. Uh, but, but, you know, lots of people do. And it drives me crazy. Yeah. You know, you're, 
the definition of a bad book for me is where, you know, the hero and the sidekick are constantly conversing. Well, what do you think about that? Well, it could be this. Well, no, it might be the other thing. Yeah, bad technique. Exactly. It's, it's transparent. Um, so but you, you think that they were able to sort of render a reacher that's not all interior? Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, actually, one of the things I learned over the years is to trust the reader mm-hmm. uh, more than perhaps I, I did at the beginning. Um, you know, don't over-explain, trust the reader. Just do one, instead of, because television where I came from was, uh, it became very, it, the, the, the competitive thing about staying on the channel, you know, the, the invention of the remote control in your hand yeah. was the biggest industrial disaster that we ever had because <laughs> prior to the remote control, a person would have to get off the couch and change the channel. And that was a huge disincentive. But with the remote control, it, uh, it, it was killing us. And so also what, what happened in TV was that it changed from being um, a serial activity where you sat and watched your show um, and then did something else. It changed into a parallel activity where you watched your show while you were on the phone to your mother, while you were cooking dinner. Yeah. And so we adapted to that in television by this motif, which was, first of all, when, when something important was coming up, plot-wise, plot first you told them you were going to tell them. Then you told them. <laughs> then you told them that you told them. <laughs> and I think I imported a little bit of that too much into the books at the beginning. Um, and over the years, I learned to, to sort of hang back yeah. and just trust the reader. Yeah. So in a sense, what the, what the TV is going to have to do with Reacher is trust the viewer. Um, you know, use facial expressions, use uh, some other indication. I mean, obviously not a spoken voiceover, but you've got to find a way to make the viewer understand what is going on in Reacher's head. And I think to a large extent, we can trust the reader and they'll figure it out for themselves. Right. Um, Yeah. Um, So I want to talk about, I want to ask you about this year's book, House on Fire. Yeah, House on Fire. Which is an OxyContin book, which... uh, Publisher publishers were afraid of libel suits. Yes. (laughs) But, yeah, quite rightly. I mean, uh, although I think in the current atmosphere you'd have gotten away with it, but, yeah, yeah, obviously you've got to fictionalize it a little bit. But we'll talk about the issue in a minute. But what struck me, you are so comfortable with rich people. You are so good. At, at getting into that lifestyle of of the American rich, the American rich, yeah. How do you? I mean, how do you do it? You must know these people, or people. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't happen to be one of them, but I know. And it's funny, you know. So I sort of it's social observation of a sort that I find. So it enriches the broth, you know? Uh-huh. But they're very convincing, those characters. Um, almost in a, I mean, actually more plausible, but very similar to the way that I think Raymond Chandler did them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, going up to the big house. Yeah. And I think meeting people right. from a different universe. Yeah, yes, exactly. And they are. I mean, I've, I, you know what it's like in this job. You bump into all kinds of people. One yeah. time I ended up having dinner with, yeah. with a guy. There were three or four of us, but there were, one of them had just bought an oil painting that day, that day for $110 million. <laughs> <laughs> and so for, usually I pay for dinner when I'm in a group, but I let that guy pay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, bet he did, I bet he would not have fought you over the check either. Right. No, we wouldn't. Have. I mean, that's how they get rich. This is what you learn eventually. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're all well paid. But what I love about the writing world, actually, is that typically we're old or we're set before it happens. 
Um, you know, I was in my 50s before I made any serious money. Is that right? And, yeah, by that point, I mean, I'd been employed. My early, my early book deals were good, and prior to that, I'd been employed at a really good salary. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't have excess cash until I was in my 50s, by which time your personality is set, right. your, taste, your tastes are fixed. Um, you don't change all that much. I can see how it is if you're an athlete or, uh, you know, rock and roll star or something, and it all happens when you're 20. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be a very different proposition. Yeah. But typically, you're hanging out with writers, and, uh, you know, there are some seriously rich people among them, but they don't seem that way. No, not at all. I really, I, I, I will say I really enjoy hanging out with writers. Yeah. I mean, you know... There are some who are, you know, aren't so fun to hang out with. But, but very few. But very few. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think we all know which ones are the not fun ones. And, uh, but it, it does surprise me how few they are and yeah. how nice most, most of them are. They really and humble, are. really. I mean, you, like at Harrogate, I remember last time I was there, uh, you know, people would walk, up, walk in and you knew that their book that, that year or last year had been staggering. You know, they right. walk in with tremendous achievement, but they are as humble as anybody else. Uh-huh. It's totally winning. Yeah, it is. Um, it's a lovely community. Yeah. Uh, I feel uh, just very satisfied and happy that I, I got the chance to, to work with people like that. Mm-hmm. You know, you sort of, this is, I guess, sort of a valedictory kind of question, although it pains me to say that. Um, you, um, um, you didn't, the Reacher books remained really good. And um, I was afraid that, that as, a writer, as a writer gets tired, the books are just going to get flatter and flatter you know, until they're forced out of town on a rail. Yeah. What happened with you? Well, thank you very much. And I, cause that was absolutely uh, an ambition that I did not get lazy and I did not uh, start to phone it in because we've all seen that happen. Um, you know, many, many great series in the past are actually not that great. I mean, they were terrific for half a dozen books and then fell off a cliff or whatever. Right. And, uh, so it was always on my mind, do not be that guy yeah. who starts phoning it in. And I, I was delighted that I, I got away with it for so long without <laughs> feeling that. Uh -huh. And um, yeah, as a matter of personal pride and craftsmanship, yeah. I, I definitely did not want to put out an inferior, because it's humiliating, essentially, because readers are so generous that they'll, it's typically about five years, I think. It's probably five books before they give up on you. Yeah. So what you're basically doing is dying in front of their eyes for five years. That's right. And yeah, you, I mean, if you've got any kind of self-respect, you can't do that. Yeah. You have to have a very finely tuned detector in your head that stands apart and will tell you, no, this is rubbish. Mm-hmm. And part of I have a, re a trusted reader who will tell you the same thing. Yeah, I don't have those though. I'm not one of those writers who shares it with anybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't even like sharing it with my editor. You know, <laughs> I, I'm just like publish it. Um, <laughs> what are you doing? I, no. Yes, I, I don't have a reader, and I yeah. I probably wouldn't listen to them anyway because it's so uh, internally generated. Yeah. But I, I, and I'm, I'm sure that nobody really noticed it in my last book, Blue Moon, but I was feeling it a little bit. I was, I, the thing about Blue Moon is it's got the most spectacularly high body count. I mean, yeah. hundreds of people are dead in that book. <laughs> and it was almost, I could feel myself just not taking the, the difficult decisions because I never plan. I don't outline. It's just all spontaneous. So I would repeatedly, you know, several times a day, you come to a choice. All right, what now? Right. And I was just like, oh, fuck it, kill them all. <laughs> 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 uh, 
which in a way was a kind of unbounded, uh, exuberant approach. But on the other hand, I felt, is this lazy? Am I not being as ingenious as I ought to be? Uh-huh. So you were sort of feeling that, that the sort of struggle. I was, uh, but you know, that said, I did have my detector turned up to extreme sensitivity. Yeah. Because I wanted to catch it before anybody would notice. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I did get away with it. And I probably could have done another two or three just as good, but at some point I would have had to stop. So, you know, why not now? So you wouldn't, so you, you're basically quite sure this is the last Reacher, that you have written the last Reacher. I have, yeah, but my brother will now write, uh, to, you know, carry on with the franchise and we'll see how it works out. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious if you ever want to talk about it, about it how that yeah. would. I imagine you're working it out, though, so. We'll, yeah, I mean, I'll, we'll see how it goes this year. And then uh, if we ever get to a situation where we can drop by and have dinner, then, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it. Oh, God, if that, if that part of the world, if the world ever returns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great. So just for the uh, people watching, te- tell them where you are. I am in Truro, Mass. I'm Cape Cod. Uh, in my little office, which is sort of a cabin, which we, which actually was the garage of the old house. We strapped it up, picked it up on a crane, moved it over down the hill, and that became my office on a, on a concrete foundation. And that became my office. How cool is that? Yeah, that was cool. I've been to Truro. I believe it has the, uh, the first synagogue ever built in America uh, was in Truro. No, I don't think so. I think that's it's uh, in Rhode Island. Okay, I might have misremembered that. Then. It's. I don't think so. There's no synagogue here. <laughs> have you been there um, the whole time? Oh no, we were in Boston for a bit and right. decided that after a while that it would be nice to sort of be able to walk around outside without a mask on. So we, we've been here for about a month or so. Yeah, well, we, I, I'm in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, about four years ago, we bought a, a place out here for, I don't know why really, just to um, experience the West. Uh, <laughs> because as you know, I, I love New York, absolutely love New York. Um, but I have this immigrants thing that, you know, there's more to see. There's more to experience. And so we bought this place um, as the exact opposite of New York. And, and it absolutely is. How so? Wyoming is the most bizarre state. It is, um, for UK people watching this, it is, Wyoming as a state is larger than the UK physically. The entire UK could fit into Wyoming. But Wyoming has the population of a small size city like Leicester or something like that, about a half a million people spread out across it. It is unbelievably isolated. I've got to drive 10 miles before I see a paved road. (laughs) Yeah, it is unbelievable. I've got to drive 10 miles to pick up my mail from my mailbox. It is um, so isolated. And we intended to use it as a sort of contrast to New York, which it totally is. I mean, in previous years, I was here for a couple of months at a time, maybe. And then I go back to New York and I usually get in late in the evening. So I go to the store at midnight to get coffee and stuff for breakfast the next day. And walking that one block at midnight, I would see more people than I'd seen in the previous two months. <laughs> um, it, it's a wonderful contrast. And of course, when this situation started, it's ideal. I, isolation is mandatory. It's not something you've got to choose. Uh, it's all you've got here. So you basically don't have to wear a mask either. Uh, not unless we go to the store when uh, we, we wear a mask to be good citizens. Or something? Yes, about 45 miles to the grocery store. And uh, so actually our daughter is with us. Um, We're all three together. 
and she does the shopping she because she she deems us elderly and vulnerable mm-hmm. so she does the shopping which is great yeah and, uh, otherwise it's just um, no different to normal it's, mm-hmm. it feels like normal life except that uh, you know i've been here so long it, it's, it feels very weird to be in the same spot repeatedly and i i worry that i'm becoming kind of shut in or institutionalized or something right right um but uh it's the so, the social the sort of the social distancing is sort of a uh fact of life in wyoming you do it is. are you missing new york yeah i'm totally missing it um except one wonders uh, what will be there when you get back. Um, you know, all the the dozen little trivial things that you would normally do every day. Uh, I mean, literally just the sort of normal intercourse of the day. You know, I'll come down in the elevator. There's one of the doormen that is particularly into cars and British cars, you know, like Aston Martins and stuff like that. So we'll have a you know, a guy conversation about V8s or V12s or whatever. Then I'll go to the uh, diner on the corner and have breakfast. Then maybe I'll drop in at the hardware store and get what I need or the supermarket or the bookstore. All of those trivial things are going to be fraught. They're going to be weird and difficult. And they're certainly not happening now. So I miss what New York used to be. Right. But I have no idea what it is now. It must be so strange. Yeah, I mean... We, our apartment looks out over Central Park and they had a hospital there, you know, hospital tents and uh, temporary burial sites mm-hmm. in the park uh, yeah. um, back in April. So that, uh, yeah, it's just uh, ap- ap- apocalyptic. Really. Yeah, it's like a, it's a, you know, bad movie. Or yeah. Or a good movie. <laughs> well, you know, bad in terms, because in a, in a good movie, we'd have Morgan Freeman who would have sorted it all out by now. <laughs> but yeah, it's a good metaphor, the movie thing, because that's how I used to think of it before. You know, it's like you've wandered into the multiplex and you've accidentally gone into the wrong auditorium. Right. But they won't let you out. <laughs> that's good. All right, so... What's the, what's the next book with the one that you are you're in contact with a cop? Is it is a cop book? It's um, half half a cop book and half a shrink book. Okay. She's <laughs> uh, a psychiatrist in Boston uh-huh. um, with a, a strange life story. And, uh, and she gets involved with this cop. So... Uh, and... Um, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, good. Well, that, that is always the, um, that's always a question my agent asks me, are you enjoying it? Mm-hmm. As I assume he imagines that then translates into a good product. And necessarily so. <laughs> no, not necessarily so. I found it to be almost the reverse a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, the harder the book was to do, I mean, I remember one book in particular I did, 61 Hours. Mm-hmm. I was just cursing that book throughout because it just was hard. Yeah. But it came out really, really well. Yes. And the other thing I noticed with every book is the happier, the better mood I'm in, the crosser and more cantankerous Reacher is. <laughs> and vice versa somehow. I was, I was just reading... Um... Yeah, it was the enemy. I was just reading the enemy. There was a scene I wanted to revisit, and it's a fight scene with Reacher, and it made me laugh out loud. And I've read this about three times before. So I mean, I just I just know you, and I know that you had, you know, you really enjoyed that, writing that. Yeah, I mean, shamefully, I enjoy the fights the best of all. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Because you make, you make your fights interesting. Yeah. The thing I, re- I remember two things about the enemy. Um, one was, uh, I, you know, like we were saying, the internality of Reacher. Reacher spends a whole page uh, asking himself the question, what is the signature sound of the 20th century? 
And he answers it in a couple of paragraphs, longish paragraphs. And uh, I thought that's some of the best writing I've ever done. And nobody has ever noticed it or mentioned it. <laughs> and the other thing I remember about the enemy is Risha's mother dies. And there's a long paragraph again where she, she talks to her two sons and uh, explains her philosophy of dying. Um, she, she uses a metaphor, uh, you know, she seems to accept her own death and she's worried that her kids are going to be uh, upset about that. You know, they probably wanted to stick around and see their lives. And she uses a metaphor, it's like, it's like having to walk out of a movie early. I'll never know what happened in the end. But then she says, but I'm going to have to leave the movie at some point. Right. I, I will never know what, what ultimately happens. So the when doesn't really matter. And I, I, I deliberately self-consciously wrote that as a message to my own daughter. Uh-huh. Um, as, you know, just the sort of thing, because don't forget we're British and therefore it's hard to talk about feelings and so on. You have to, <laughs> you have to do it indirectly. And so that particular one paragraph is my message to my daughter that, um, you know, when the time comes, don't think I'm not interested, but, yeah. you know, I cannot outlive you and therefore it's going to happen at some point. At some point I have to choose the time if I have a choice or it's just going to happen one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope we can get together actually at Harrogate sometime. Yeah. With, with everybody. We'll, we miss that. I miss it. I miss yeah. it a lot. So I hope, it, I hope it's next year or the year after. I hope it's soon. But soon, yeah. Let's, uh, and it's ideal there because it's, it's sort of semi outside anyway. Yeah. So hopefully people will feel more confident about it. Good point. It is. And there's the tent and all that, anyway. All right, great talking to you, Joe. You too. Stay well, stay productive, stay happy, and uh, keep the beard going. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Hiv Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.